I was born in 1949. That's inconsequential, except that I'm very, I'm a very much a baby boomer, um, more influenced by the generation before me than by the generations that have followed me. And so I'm kind of a split personality today. I grew up um, uh, before all the audio video technology, in fact, before personal computers, before calculators. Our adding machine was a mechanical one, and you push buttons in that caused little levers to move, and then you pulled a handle, and it gave you the total. And so, uh, so, but I've learned to adapt it to uh, technology. I've learned to, uh, to use it, uh, but I sometimes don't know which world I'm in. Uh, I, it was fortunate when I first started preaching. We used great big pulpits, and I was short, so most of me was hidden behind it. Nobody could see me shaking. <laughs> But uh, so, so I'm a little bit anxious or whatever else today because I'm blending two different modes, preaching and teaching, and I, I, don't, I won't know which one I'm in at any given time, so just kind of ha hang in there with me. But that's not to take away from the subject today, which is grace. We have certain words in our Christian vocabulary we use uh, all the time, and, uh, and, and grace is, is uh, make sure I have my technology turned on here. Do I? Where do I have to point it? Pull the handle. There we go. Got it. Let's see here. Yes. Oh, well. So much for that. Okay. Let's see here. Got it. There we go. Yay. See? <laughs> now we got that out of the way. I can relax and we can go on. Alan asked Susan if she gets embarrassed. I said, no. She, she's way up past that. that Sometimes she just goes, yes. <laughs> so if you see her, you're, uh, well. But grace is a very important Christian word. It's a word we use often. It comes easily. It just rolls off of our, our tongues when we pray, and at other times uh, it, it comes so easily. Yet sometimes familiarity with a word causes us to stop thinking about what it really means as we use it. And grace is vital. It's a vital word. Everything really hinges upon the grace of God for us. Everything. Without the grace of God, we would be toast. Very burnt toast, in fact. So I want to look at grace a little different way today as we, as we look at it. Um, and and uh, I, I want to start by talking about... Um, uh, uh, Paul's letters, and again here, I think I've goofed something again. Did I push a button wrong way? <laughs> Who's, who's button? Who does it? There we go. Okay, so um, I think I pushed too many buttons, didn't I? Okay. <laughs> we got it. Let's, let's go back to the beginning. Can you do that? Take me back to the beginning. All right, we'll get this. All right, now we got it. I know what it is. I, I see. Okay, here we go. So, so what I want to start with is just giving an introduction really quick. Um, the, the city of Ephesus, that's where Paul's writing to today in the book of Ephesians, the city of Ephesus. It was originally an ancient Greek city, became a major Roman city. It was the capital of what was called Asia. If you can visualize Turkey today, that was what they would call Asia. Bordered on the left, the western part, uh, the western part by the Mediterranean Sea, a little sea called the Aegean Sea, but it was part of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul journeyed over there with the gospel, uh, as he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It was a commercial and administrative center. It was very, very important uh, uh, in, in its day. 
Uh, in that area, it was the major city, often called the mother of Asia. <clears throat> it was ruled by Roman politics, Roman military, Roman economics. Uh, the Romans kept peace by the sword. That's what they understood. And so here was this seaport city uh, with major land routes, and so it became a major commercial area. It, was, uh, it had a, a pagan temple to Diana or Artemis. One was the Roman name, the other the Greek name. Artemis uh, was called the guardian of the city. In the, in the ancient Greek and Roman cities, uh, it, you, the worship of the god was everything. If you wanted to sell in the agora, in the marketplace, you had to make a sacrifice to the god as you, as you brought your products in. If you wanted to come and buy and sell before you could go in and exchange in the marketplace, you had to make a sacrifice to the god. For, the, for their city council or city meetings, uh, the, the people who came in had to come in and make a sacrifice uh, to the city god. Uh, the city god was the center of everything. And, and very, very important. Artemis became a, a goddess of fertility, and, uh, and, and the worship of Artemis eventually uh, also involved uh, ritual prostitution. Paul was there for two years on his third missionary journey in uh, chapter 19 of Acts, and, uh, and there uh, uh, he established a congregation. Uh, lots of things happened uh, during that time, including a riot in which he was arrested because the people who made the statues to Artemis uh, got upset because Paul was converted. They said Paul was converting so many people that they were losing business. And so, and so uh, 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 they got upset, but the, uh, county, the city clerk reminded them that this was a Roman city, and uh, Romans didn't like violence. They liked peace, and to keep the Romans from coming in, they needed to quiet it down a little bit, so they did. And, uh, but but they, they weren't really keen on Paul being there, the, the, the general people. Oftentimes, the gospel is countercultural. And we see that in, in, in Paul all over as you read the book of Acts. And so, and so we also find out that he leaves Timothy there eventually. If you read 1 Timothy, Timothy becomes the pastor in Ephesus, uh, taking the place of Paul, and, and he guides the ministry um, uh, from that point on. So uh, there are several letters written by Paul. I just want to... Uh, mentioned this. This isn't really a, a big thing, but uh, he wrote 13 New Testament to churches and individuals. He, sometimes he answered questions. Sometimes he corrected problems. Uh, sometimes um, uh, he warned of danger, like in Galatians. Sometimes he gave advice, like he did to first, in 1 Timothy to Timothy. Sometimes he wrote things to explain his theology, which is really what Ephesians is really about. Ephesians doesn't address certain problems and other things that would be normal in his other letters. It just seems to lay out his under, uh, Paul's understanding of God's purpose and plan for his creation. Uh, not a small item, right? And so, and so that really was the, the, the basic uh, intent for, for uh, Ephesians. Now, the basic contents of Ephesians, as we look at it, uh, is, is centered in the four, chapter 4, verse 1. That, that's the centerpiece. Often in Paul's letters, uh, they'll be divided into two sections. One is like the theological background. The other is the practical application of it. You see that over and over in most of Paul's letters. It's a very clear pattern to see. And, uh, and that's true here. Chapters 1 through 3 are theological, call, about the calling to be the people of God. And chapters 4 through 6 are very practical as living as the people of God. 
And, and verse 4, I mean, chapter 4, verse 1 is the centerpiece. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul's in prison at this time in Rome. Uh, and then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. See, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. As he speaks about the calling and about living as the people of God. And so Ephesians, uh, it just kind of opens up when you, when you can see that, that basic uh, a background understanding of, of, of what it is and, and why Paul wrote it. So, so there are three major themes. These verses aren't the only ones that address these major themes, but there are three major themes. One is God's purpose. And, and in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven, on earth, and under, uh, under Christ. And so from the, from the creation, God has been working, and he has been unfolding everything uh, as, as, as he has been working. Uh, the creation was followed by the fall, which centered into human life and began to destroy the creation that God had called good and very good. God called Abraham. He told him, uh, I, will make you, I will make your name great. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. And so when he said that, he was speaking first of Israel, who would be the great nation who would come from uh, uh, Abraham and would be a God's blessing to the world through which God would show his grace that would draw all nations to himself. But at the right time, he proposed to reveal the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would be the king in the kingdom of God. The Messiah had been promised by the prophets, and now God reveals. Um, not a mystery in a, kind of, in a kind of secret, but a mystery in something to be unveiled in the right time. And now that's fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus Christ. And uh, part of that is the Ephesians. The, in Ephesians, he talks about the church becoming the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, and through the church he would bring everything under Christ, everything under Christ who would be the king, uh, the Lord. And this would be the restoration of God's creation that had fallen, uh, but now would be brought back to him, be restored to the place he intended for it to be all along. See that? Uh, and that's, that's, that's part of it there. So then he says, uh, the second thing, the second th big thing that I see is God's people. Obviously, as God's going to use the church to do this, he needs to say something about who these people are. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. And I, in, I enter Jew and Gentile because that's what he's meaning. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God and through the cross uh, by which he put to death their hostility. If God's going to bring all humanity together in his grace and he starts with Israel the Jewish people, then it's obvious he has to bring the Gentiles in too. And that's the purpose of the church. It's to now fold the Gentiles into this restoration process as God uh, brings, us, brings about first a new humanity, um, which is seen through the church. And now the, uh, the church picks up where, uh, the ministry of Israel and carries it on. It doesn't replace Israel because Israel's part of it. Uh, but it doesn't replace Israel, the people of God, uh, in the, uh, as we knew them in the Old Testament, and the Gentiles are brought together now as something totally new uh, called the church. And then uh, part of God's plan uh, over all of this 
His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now through the church, he unfolds his plan to restore his creation. And he, he wants it to be known. Uh, they, they, I, I didn't draw a diagram of this. I have some diagrams. But they, they had a... Uh, they still had a kind of three-story universe understanding of things. The heavens above where God dwelt, uh, the earth uh, where we uh, humans would dwell, and the waters below where it was a place of death uh, and, and was seen as the place uh, 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 where evil would dwell. Okay, so, so, but in the heavens, there was the higher heavens where God would be, but then there's the air where there would be other spirits. And, in, and the Romans and the Greeks were very... Uh, much aware of, uh, uh, and, and believed in, in all kinds of spiritual things, powers. And so they believed that the, the, the air was the place where these uh, spirits dwelt. And so uh, the rules and authorities of the heavenly realms, angels could see and rejoice, and the evil powers as a sign of their ultimate defeat. As they saw the church beginning to carry out the purpose God has for it, this is the signal that it's all over, that Christ is now... Uh, triumphant, not just in his personally by being raised from the dead, but now that resurrection is spreading to other people, and it will continue to spread as, as God works through his church. So in, in one sense, uh, just as a hint of the future, there's a lot at stake in how we live, isn't there? There's a lot at stake in how we live and who we are as the people of God. Uh, that's important uh, to remember. So... Uh, We'll, I'm going to look at ver, uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and that's what I'm going to try to unfold today. Uh, and so it begins, as for you, I'm going to read the whole thing first, and I'm going to come back and take it piece by piece, all right? So the first thing, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. That doesn't sound very familiar, does it? Not at all. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then he continues uh, in the next part, verses 6 through 10. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right, let's break it down. There we go. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, that's where we'll start. I kind of like color-coded a little bit there, a bit fancy, but, I, you know, whatever. <laughs> As for you, that's plural, 
all the way through this passage, Paul speaks in the plural to the people of Ephesus. Okay? Obviously, a body of people is made up of a lot of individuals. So the message comes to individuals, but it's a message that's intended for the whole together, to be seen as a whole together. There's no such thing as little individual churches running around. We are the church together. And that's what Paul, that's how Paul dresses them in the plural. And they are Gentile. He's versus Gentile, and then he, then he comes together. You were dead. This is the key idea. Dead means separated from God in this case. God is the God of life. As I'm going to show you, and he gives life, and he is life. And to be separated from God is to be separated from life to be dead. Dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin is a biblical word for missing the mark. It was an archer's word for shooting an arrow at a target and missing the target. So sometimes for us, we actually make the effort, but we just aren't capable of hitting the mark. Transgressions is stepping over the line. It's trespassing. It's going where you don't belong. Sometimes we just willfully step over the line, right? Both are characteristic of the way we live, aren't they? In which you used to live. Look at this, okay? When you followed the ways of this world, Jesus goes one way toward God in the kingdom of God, and the world around us goes the opposite way, away from God toward the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is represented, this is, this is very generalizations because I, I I I'm short on time and I'm talking fast and I'm trying to get through this, but it's about power. It's about position. It's about possessions. Do whatever it takes to get there, right? Doesn't make any difference who's in your way. You either get them out of the way or you walk over them to get where you really want to be. They don't, they don't count. What counts is the power, the position, the possessions you can accumulate. And just as an aside, how different that is from the life we saw Jesus live, right? How different. And the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That would be Satan. Satan doesn't have power over the people of God, but influence, great influence uh, uh, in evil. All of us also lived among them at one time. Here again, he begins to include Jews, the Jewish people, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The flesh is the fallen human nature which is susceptible to all those things above, the sins, the transgressions, the desires, all those kinds of things. It's susceptible to those. It, it, it's vulnerable. It doesn't know how to deal with them. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath because of the way we live. Wrath is God's response to sin that destroys his creation. He, he can't tolerate it. Because from the very beginning, it was sin that began to destroy and continues to destroy the creation of God. And sin has to be dealt with for God to restore his creation and bring it back to where he really wants it to be. And it's his protection against sin which cannot be in his presence. If God is to be a, a, a holy and righteous God who is thoroughly just, he cannot have sin in his presence, right? And so uh, people were originally created the image of God, were alive in God in right relationship with him. But what happened was that sin and transgressions entered in, and, uh, and this, this kind of represents an infinite gap there. It's not like a little line that we can measure. This is like an infinite gap now between God and people, right, because of our sin, which, 
which now stands in the way. And to, and to make that even uh, more clear here, uh, they, they become a barrier uh, because of God's wrath. God's wrath says no one can enter into God's presence. Uh, God's wrath says uh, this is unacceptable, totally unacceptable because of what it's doing to the creation I created, specifically to the humans as the crown of that creation. It's destroying life as I intended to be and bringing death. And therefore, uh, this barrier exists, and there can be no relationship with God. Again, this represents an infinite gap. We're not right with God, and therefore, we are dead. God is life. We're separated from God, and therefore, dead in that separation. That's what Paul's saying. It's very clear. Uh, the whole goal is to be connected to God in life, um, as, as, uh, as I mentioned before. So... Uh, so, so now we are totally separated from, from God. Uh, God just can't allow that there, and so his wrath is, is that, uh, creates that gap and, and leads to death, no possibility of life, as I said, for us. And for this, life is a quality of life. We often think of, uh, of, of eternal life, and, and certainly that's part of the quality of God's life. But the quality of God's life is more than just time. See, God doesn't know time. Now, that's a hard thing for us because we're bound to time, aren't we? That's all we've got, right, is time. Well, not a lot of it, but we have time, right? Everything's governed by time. But God has no time. To him, it's, it, just, it just is, right? So when we start talking about eternal life, that's our understanding, not his. For him, the life is a quality of life that's totally different from what we know now. Our life is really death, what we call life. And so we need the life that is, is God alone. We measure life in, in physical, physical and emotional accumulations, what we can obtain. And truly to live, we must have all that we possibly can, uh, however we define that. But in reality, again, our pursuit of life is really death, as God understands it. So then we come to verses 4 through 5. And, and, uh, and, and when you come to a word like but or therefore... Always pay attention to them. But is an important translation word that says this is how it is at one point, but now this is how it really is. It, it's, it's, a, it's a total flip, okay? And that's important to see. Because of his great love for us, in the scripture, love that is characteristic of God that now becomes characteristic of his people is a love which wills the best for the other wills the best for the other. Whatever is the best for the other, that's why God sent Jesus into the world. The best for us is that we might have that sin dealt with so we could live. So God did what was best for us. He sent his son Jesus who died for us. See that? And so love is, is God willing the best for us. And, and it's not a feeling. Uh, feelings accompany everything about human beings, but love itself is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. It is doing what's right by the other. So God did what was right for us. God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is withholding what is deserved. In this case, judgment, punishment, discipline. That's what's deserved. But in mercy, God says, I'm going to step back from that, and I'll withhold what is deserved, and I'm going to give what isn't deserved. Okay? That's grace. Giving what's not deserved is grace. So, uh, so it says that he made us alive with Christ. Now notice it says he, God, made us alive. It's an act of God alone. What transpires here is an act of God alone. 
we need to understand that. We sometimes, when we talk about, we do partner with God, but sometimes when we talk about partnering with God, we kind of like say, but maybe I'm the important part. God, you just kind of like tag along and do what's necessary for me that I can't do myself, right? But that's not what he means. He means this is an act of God alone. It's God alone who, who, who brings us alive in Christ. And even when we were dead in transgressions, uh, it's not because of something we did, it's something that God did for us when we couldn't do it for ourselves. He gifted us, he graced us. Um, he bestowed this upon us. It is, and so he says, it is by grace you have been saved. Rescued from death, from the separation from God, that's what the word saved means. It's not just getting a, a, fire, insurance ticket, a, a, a fire insurance policy or a ticket to heaven. It's being brought from death to life. It's not an add-on to make the rest of life a little easier. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes we look at it that way. Now, if I could just get a little bit of peace, if I could just get a little bit of comfort, if I could just do it this, deal with this anxiety a little bit, everything will be fine. It's not just a, an add-on that we add on to everything else in our life, like you would an app on your phone and you use it whenever you need it. It's not an add-on. It is the essence of life itself because that's the only place life comes from is what God is doing through Jesus Christ to save us. Baptism is a symbol of that. We lower people to the water and say they die with Christ. We bring them out of the water and say they come alive to a new life. It's a graphic symbol. It's like here's our life here and something stops. Then down here it begins again on a whole different place. Or maybe we start down here and then stops and up here we start in a whole new place. That's what it's talking about. Okay? That's what it's talking about. Uh, a whole new life. And so if, if we look at it then... Uh, again, uh, uh, this may make uh, some sense. Because of God's love and mercy and grace, he sends Jesus to die upon the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Je the sacrifice that Jesus makes removes this sin barrier, uh, the wrath that separated us from God. And when that wrath is removed, unrighteous people are made right with God again. See that? And so, um, and so that, that becomes the cornerstone of what he's trying to say to us, is the, that unrighteous people become right again. They're made right. Not that we suddenly are righteous in and of ourselves, but that God makes us right by giving us a righteousness not our own, he says in, in, uh, in Romans. And God raised us up with Christ to a new life. Again, like a talk of baptism, he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated is in the past tense. It can symbolize two different things. Seated could symbolize that... In the past tense, this is done. It's a done deal. When, 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 you, when you do what you set out to do and you sit down, it's a sign you finished it, right? And that's what uh, we are seated with him. This is, this is done. And uh, it's a resting position. Also seated in the heavenly realms, beyond the physical, yet sharing that space. There's a mystery in this that we can live in some ways in two worlds at the same time. It's not like one foot in one world, one foot in the other. You can step back and forth. You can't. But we live in a physical world. Sitting in pews, seeing each other, drinking water, physical world. But we live in a spiritual world now as well, made alive to God. God's everywhere. And we're alive to God. And so we're, we're alive in that level uh, all the time. Even though our feet are still on the ground in the physical world or sitting in a pew, uh, we are now in the world of God, alive to God, and therefore uh, in, in, this, in this other world. In order that, here again, some of those words, this tells us reason. In order that, God has seated us with Christ and the heavens made us alive, seated with him. In order that, in the coming ages, uh, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The coming ages, the Jews thought all of life was divided into two segments. If this is the middle, middle uh, over here was the present age, they call the present age. This was the dividing line over on the other side is the age to come. 
They believed eventually as, they began to, as the prophets began to speak that this dividing point would be the place where the Messiah would come and would initiate the kingdom of God upon earth. Okay, And that would be the restoration of God's creation. Jesus kind of messed them up a little bit because when he came as the Messiah, he didn't immediately bring the physical kingdom, but he brought an invisible kingdom that we're calling now the, the time of the church. And after that, the physical kingdom would come. But that's what he says, that people could see in the coming ages, in the age of the church and in the, in the age of consummation, uh, that, that, that God is showing uh, in all of this the incomparable riches of his grace. Okay? That's what he's doing, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, the witness of our lives to God's grace living in through us, in us and through us to others who are now dead um, uh, so that they might experience his, his love and mercy and grace uh, is, is what he is doing. And so that might look like this. Okay. There we go. Uh, whoops. Back we go, maybe. Well, anyway, there was a picture. There it is. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Let's see here. I'm pushing something. Okay, maybe we'll stay. Okay, so, so we have people in Christ, alive by the Holy Spirit, now in relationship with God, right with God, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, in order to show God's grace and kindness to unrighteous people who are also dead in sin, so that the whole thing can cycle again, right? So that these people who are now dead in sin can, can become alive in Christ like we are and keep doing the same thing. You see that? But our purpose is not just to live a whole lot better for ourselves. Our purpose is to show the kindness that God has shown to us, called his grace, to others. And when they see the kindness that God has done in our lives that we now show to them, then they will understand his grace and they'll want to be part of it. And they will come alive in Christ too. See that? Okay? That's important. That's what Paul says the purpose of all this is. Uh, that's what it's all in Christ. And then he adds this very important uh, provision. This is not a footnote, but it's like a footnote. This is the one he says, please understand this. It is by grace that you have been saved. There's no plan B. It's by grace. Okay? That's it. We can't, we can't uh, earn it. We can't buy it. Uh, we can't merit it. I'll talk about that in a moment. It only comes through God's grace. That his, it's his gift. You can't buy a gift. It's just given to you. Freely given by God. Through faith, it says, which is the vehicle through which it works. Faith is trust. In the Old Testament, they brought sacrifices. There's no magic in those sacrifices. There's no magic. What it was was a sign of their hearts. Coming to God and saying, I need your forgiveness. I want your forgiveness. Please forgive me. They made the sacrifice and God took, gave them credit for that, for, for, for acting in faith and, uh, before him and saying, uh, please uh, forgive me. And so it's letting go of our effort to make something of ourselves. We can't do that. I mean, just imagine what it would be like to try to make something yourself before God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, the God who holds it all together, the God's moving everything. I mean, everything, not just a little tiny bit that we have trouble managing, right? But everything. And you're going to do something to impress him. <laughs> right? <laughs> you have to think about that one for a while, right? This is not of yourselves. We have nothing in it. We can't do anything. It's a gift of God. Not by works, so we can't boast. And we will. That's human nature. We will. 
If there's a chance to boast, we will. We may not say it in words, but we'll wait around for the words to come, won't we? Giving hints, right? <coughs> right? We can't wait. So you can't boast, for we are God's handiwork. He alone has made us who we are in him. Create in Christ Jesus, do good works to live out our witness. That's the good work he wants from us. It's to live out that witness, to be a witness to the kindness that he has made, which God prepared in advance for you to do. What God has been doing from the beginning, from creation all the way through, God's been working through Abraham, through Israel, through Moses, through David, uh, through Jesus, through Paul now. And from Paul till our day, God has been working. We don't ask God to join us in the life we have planned for ourselves. Listen to that. We do not ask God to join us in the life we have planned for ourselves. God asks us to join in the life he has planned for us. You have to think about that one. It's really important. He asks us to join him in all that he's doing from creation to consummation in the life he has planned for us. Again, plural, not just individual. It's not like the plan God has for my life. I am part of the plan God has for all of life. Right? See that? Now, that may involve a plan for my life or your life in a way, because each of us are individuals, and he uses our gifts and talents in different ways. But the big plan is all of us working together as his people, him working through us in the midst of us. So what does that mean then? We're, we're, we're going to come down to here and try to understand God's grace. Uh, God's grace is the gift of his person. That's what I think. None of this comes apart from God. You can't have love apart from the God who is love. You can't have mercy apart from the God who is mercy. You can't have grace apart, a kindness from apart from God. You can't just say, God, give me this little bundle here that I can take with me and I'll come back when I need more. It's the, it's the presence of God that makes us alive. And it's the presence of God that accepts us as we are in, in grace. Grace is, is what he is doing in us. His, his person, his love, his mercy, his kindness. And I'm just going to uh, do a few things here real quickly. Uh, 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 I don't know how this is going to sound, but grace is unmerited. Our world values merit. We, we classify people according to the merit we think they have. Certain persons have more merit than others. People who are very wealthy have more merit than people who are poor in our world, do they not? I mean, seriously. People who have power have more merit than people who have no power. You don't go to someone who has no power for help, do you? They're in the same boat you're in. You go to a person who has power, and the more power, the better, right? People who have position have merit. People who have no position, everybody goes, who is that? You know, you say, have you ever met uh, Joe Smith? They say, Joe Smith, who's Joe Smith? You know, position, power, all those things. We value those. And people who have those things, who have that merit, have privilege. They get to do things other people don't get to do, right? Seriously, this is the way it works. That's why we try so hard to get power and position and possessions because we want to be involved in all those things. We want them to be part of our lives. The, of course, the life that's leading to death, but just the same. That's what we want, we think. But it's not based on these things. Those who are not valued have no privilege. They're left out or left behind. 
But God does not work according to merit. He does not look at a list and say, okay, in the line to be made alive, I want first the people who have the most money. I want second the people who have the most power. I want third the people who have the greatest positions. And everybody else kind of line up where you fall along the way. And if time runs out, too bad about you in the back of the, of the room, right? That's not how he does it, is it? Everybody is exactly the same. Now, that's countercultural, isn't it? It goes totally against the way we've been taught to understand our lives and the world in which we live, but that's the way God sees it. His grace is the same for every single person. No matter how we might be visioned by the world around us, he sees us all the same. Everyone the same opportunity to become alive in Christ. All right? That's very important. Very, very important. Along with that, uh, it's unearned. Now, you might think merit and, 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 and effort are, are similar, and they can be. We can, we can, we can gain merit by our effort, but, but, but it's not about our effort. Our effort leads to pride, doesn't it? But our world values that. And sometimes we, we kind of look up to people who, are, who have the most reason to be proud or who seem the most proud, and we're proud of them. We praise them. Uh, for their effort, and that's what we do. Now, I'm not saying anybody should be lazy, but I'm saying that our world works on effort. You work hard, you get a raise, you work harder, you get uh, promoted, and we want to be promoted, don't we? I mean, we really do. That's part of the life we live in. Effort is very important to our world. Those who succeed move to the top. Those who don't succeed fall to the bottom. Uh, those who succeed again uh, are first in line. But that's not the way God sees it. It's not about who can make the best effort. Everyone is the same again. It's not, it's not based upon the effort that we make to become alive, to be saved in Christ. It's based upon uh, God's grace and his mercy. It's, it, and again, like that, it's unearned. Uh, it, it also is undeserved. That's very important. It's because of all those things. It, it's, not, it's not that we have this great value that we can show to God and say, God... Uh, I deserve this. Uh, again, people with merit, people who have earned their way, can go some places and say, look, man, I deserve this. And they say, okay, great, you do. Come on in. But that's not God. You can't earn this. Uh, it, it, and, and it isn't deserved. It, it, our humanity is broken. There's nothing we can place before God uh, that can say to him, I deserve this. Nothing. Nothing. And I know as we look around the room, as we go out and, 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 uh, and walk the streets or go to someplace today, hopefully at a, uh, maybe a restaurant to honor mom, but then again, the lines are going to be long. <laughs> but anyway, as we get out there, we kind of look at things that way. Uh, we, we value people on that merit scale, and, and we think some people deserve more and some people deserve less. That's just the way we, we look at things. Uh, we're relative in our humanity. This part of humanity looks... Uh, worse, and this part of the humanity looks better. But when I drew the diagram of God and the infinite gap, uh, you couldn't even put on there uh, where we could rise to on our ladder on that picture. It would be so infinitesimal next to God to, to say, I deserve this, God. He says, no, I'm sorry, you don't. You're in the same boat with everybody else. We're all there. Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So one other thing before I get to the last one, and that is it's unconditional. I left that off. I forgot. But it's unconditional, all right? There aren't any conditions we have to make. 
to receive the grace of God. We don't have to say, okay, God, I know I've been really bad, and these things stand out as really poor. I'm going to give me six weeks, God, and I'll, and I'll work on these things, and in the six weeks I'll come back, and then, then, then I'll be ready. You know, God, God doesn't say to us, okay, uh, I, I, think, I think you're going to make it, but you're not quite there yet. Go back, work on these things, come back. It's not a set of rules we have to follow. Say we have to tick off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, earn our merit badge, and God says, okay, now you're in. It's unconditional. We come to him exactly the way we are at that given moment, and he says to us, because of my kindness, because of my mercy, wrapped in my love for you, I accept you exactly the way you are this moment. There are no conditions you have to meet in order to receive, uh, 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 to become alive in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Okay, that's important. No conditions. That leads me to the last one. Whoops, was it up there? Oh, well. Um, anyway, that it's unending. It, it doesn't depend upon our continuing the performance, any performance. Uh, it, it has to be that way. If we can't save ourselves, how are we going to keep ourselves saved, right? We can't. The God's grace continues with us. Continues with us. Uh, because we, we can't make it work any other way. It, it has to be that way. His, his, his work, unending, there you go. Uh, it's not about our performance. Performance just leads to anxiety all the time. We're anxious about how God sees us, aren't we? And that's because we think we have to do something to earn his favor. Uh, it leads to legalism. We come out with our own list. We think, well, well this, is, this is too good to be true, Grace. It can't be unconditional. There has to be something here, you know? And so we come up with our own list of them. We, say, we, we hold those lists up to each other and say, hey, man, you're doing okay, but, boy, you're doing poor, you know? But God's grace doesn't end. It's not, it's not about legalism because all those things end in defeat. Eventually, we become so anxious, we give up. Eventually, we, we just lay the list down and say there's no way, and we just give up. And we see that over and over again, the people who... Who, who fall away because uh, they don't understand uh, the essence uh, uh, of this grace. So, so what I'd like to do today uh, with you uh, as, we, as we think about this, I have one other picture somewhere here. <coughs> Pushing the wrong direction. That's it. Don't push the screen. You have to push the computer. It's up. Push the one too many. There it is. Maybe. Okay. Going back to, to God's grace. I want to just remind you of the, of, the, of, the, of the life groups following the service this morning and that I'll be sharing in a life group in the lounge of the Monroe building, but you can go to your life groups. No, uh, uh, you know, nothing binding here. I won't judge you <laughs> whether you're there or not. God's grace prevails, folks. has nothing to do with that, uh, but there. But what I want to do with you is right now is, is I want to, uh, to, to close the service a little unconventional with a blessing. And what I'd like for you to do in this blessing is just get in a comfortable position, uh, to close your eyes, to put your hands in your laps or on the pew in front of you in an open position, and, and, and let me pronounce uh, the blessing upon you, okay? So let's do that. Close your eyes, get in a comfortable position, close your eyes, and, and uh, let me share this with you. You are a beloved child of God. He has chosen you to be his own. He calls you by name. He knows your deepest thoughts, your fondest hopes, your cherished dreams. He knows your bitter disappointments. He knows your 
continual suffering, and he knows the depths of your pain. He sees every smile that shines and every tear that clouds. And in everything, he embraces you in love. There is nothing that you will do from this day forward that can make God love you any more than he loves you this moment right now. And there is nothing that you will do from this day forward that can make him love you any less. You are precious to him. You are a beloved child of God. May you be blessed in his grace today and may his grace within you be a blessing to others. In his name, amen. Go in his grace.